reading from Revelation, the first chapter, beginning at the first verse. Listen for God's word for us this day. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings, of the earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom priest serving his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen look he is coming with the clouds every eye will see him even those who pierced him and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail so it is to be amen I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The word of the Lord. Ten years or so ago, my wife gave me a birthday present, one of the, the really great presents she's given me through the years. It was an airline ticket to come back to Texas. We were living in Ohio. To come back to Texas to join with one of my college roommates for a weekend of watching soccer back on campus at Trinity University where we had played soccer together and lived together. The weekend gift grew because it renewed our sporadic friendship. We've since maintained contact and probably talk every couple of weeks, if not more often. We discovered we had a lot of in common as adults. He's a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church. I, of course, am a Presbyterian minister. He coached high school soccer. I referee high school soccer. He has two daughters. I have Three daughters. I'm one up on him, I suppose. <laughs> or one behind, depending on how you count. <laughs> he moved back to Texas a few years ago after having been gone since college. I moved back to Texas a few years ago after having been gone since college. He is in great shape and runs triathlons. <laughs> well, we don't share everything in common. We were together five or six years ago. Long after his wife and kids had gone to bed, we were sitting around having one of those late night conversations. Those conversations when you solve all the problems of the world. At some point, we began talking about what it was like raising daughters. We talked about the importance of figuring out ways to make your daughter feel loved 
So she does not seek love from the wrong types of guys. Two fathers talking late at night, mind you. My friend began to make the point quite forcefully that a father must not only love his daughter, but actually show it in front of the boyfriend. You have to hug your daughter in front of her boyfriend, he told me. I started thinking about how I was doing. I wasn't sure I was doing that well, but I, I was seeing the, the wisdom of his comments, so I was nodding my head. And then he looks at me and says, You know why you have to hug your daughter in front of her boyfriend? Yeah, to build her confidence. To make her feel good about herself. No. Because the boyfriend has to see how much you love her, so you will hunt him down if he does something wrong to her. <laughs> then we talked about vigilante-style <laughs> love. Today is Christ, the King Sunday. Today we acknowledge that Christ, the King, a King far different than any secular King we might know, that Christ, the King, showed up because God chose to love us, not vigilante style, but by sending Christ the King, God's only Son, to live with us, to die for us, to love us. We need to know that God loves us. Let me shift that from the general to the particular. You need to know that God loves you. Do not hear it and shrug it off or dismiss it or figure out ways to think it's for someone else. God loves you. And God's love for you ought to be life-giving and life-changing. What's the greatest love described in the biblical text outside of God's love for us? Many would point to this story and argue the love between Jonathan and David. Jonathan, King Saul's son, and David, the shepherd boy, brought in to be part of King Saul's court. They defined their love for each other in this covenant where they literally talk about how their souls are bound together. 
It's a Hebrew word that describes covenant. It goes something like this. When Jonathan is in a position of power as King Saul's son, he will love, protect, look after David. That's his promise to love. In return, David, who will receive the love while Jonathan is in power, promises to love in the same way. So that when he rises to power, he will love, protect, and look after Jonathan. The one in power commits to loving the one who is not in power. And when the roles are reversed, they still live out their love for each other. The Hebrew word for that covenant, that type of relationship, is also used to describe God's love for us. Except we know the difference. We know that God will always be in the position of power relative to us. God will always be the one called on to love, protect look after us. We will never be in a position of power relative to God. It's a one-sided covenant from the get-go. And still God chooses. Chooses to love you. To send Christ to live among us. To send Christ to die for us. If you want to know how much you are worth, don't look at your bank account. Don't look at your report card. Don't look at your job evaluation. Don't look at the value of your house. Look to the cross and see how much value God has placed on you. We respond to God's love and how we live our own lives. Back to the covenant between David and Jonathan. David is a shepherd boy from the country who finds himself in the king's court. He had courage and ability, admittedly, as evidenced by his killing of Goliath, but now he finds himself in the shadow of King Saul. King Saul's erratic and jealous and angry. David ought to be afraid of what King Saul can do to him. The logical thing for David to do is to run back to the fields, look after the sheep. Instead, he sticks around. He becomes a warrior. He continually avoids King Saul's wrath. He even chooses not to kill King Saul when he's threatened and has the opportunity. Why can David do this? Because he knows that Jonathan loves him. Jonathan will protect him. Jonathan is looking after him. David understands what it means to be loved and then freed to live his life with courage, and grow into the leader God desires him to be. When we lay claim to God's love for us, it frees us 
It frees us to act with confidence and grow into the person God calls us to be. In the dream described in Revelation, in that, the, the dream that's shared with the early churches, there's this glorious vision of Jesus who is described as one who loves us and freed us from our sin. The early church can live out its calling because they are freed by Christ's love. We are loved by God so much we are no longer bound by our sins. We no longer need to act out our uncertainties. We no longer need to act in ways to overcome or hide our failings. We no longer need to prove ourselves so that someone might love us. How differently might we live our lives if we were not desperately trying to prove ourselves? Or if we acted out of self-confidence that did not need power or prestige or control, but knew the love God has for us? Many of the issues in our world today, I suspect, both big and small, would become non-issues if people were not trying to prove themselves at the expense of others. Not only does God love you, but you do not have to prove your worth. God has already done that for you. And so we are called to respond in how we love others. Revelation, from which we read this morning, is attributed to a writer named John, a different John. Perhaps the John, who was one of the twelve disciples, wrote letters to the early church, three of which are in the New Testament. You know, of course, that, that most of the letters to the early church have a common theme that the author is trying to get across. Go read Peter's letters, and it's about ethical living. Paul's letters, lots of doctrine stuff. And, and I think we could, could, could say that, that Paul's trying to figure out how to help the early church live in community with one another, how to be people of the resurrection. In John's letters, John summarizes what it means to follow Christ. Like the sermon I mentioned to the young disciples, the word John uses is love. Not the noun love as in something we have, but the verb love as in what we ought to do. Love others. As in since God loved us so much, we ought to love others as they are told in those letters. Christ models for us what it means to love. If we want to know how to love best, we only need to look at how Christ lived. On Christ the King Sunday, when we acknowledge Christ's sovereign reign over the world, we recognize that Christ's royal manner defies the way most kings we know live. A king at his best may feel some minor sense of obligation to the people of his kingdom. Christ the King loves the people of his kingdom so much he dies for those people Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote rings and jewels are not gifts but apologies for gifts 
the only true gift is a portion of yourself. Jesus gives us more than a portion of himself. He gives all of himself for us. What is the best gift a parent can offer his daughter or her son? To love her or to love him. The gift God has already given to you. Amen.